I used to think I had some control over my life, but now I just pull up a chair and watch the shit show unfold. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, hello. I am Andrea. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering adult child. And as fellow listener and friend, Michelle has recently programmed me in her phone. I am also the master of the shit show. And man, what an honor that is. Ah, oh, guys, it is episode 40, and it is the final episode of 2021. And I have been trying to think of something profound and life-changing to say to you all to wrap up this year and send you off into the next. And to be honest, I have not been able to figure out what the fuck that is. So I am going to leave that to my guest. Today, I am diving deep with Francisco. He is a fellow drunk, a fellow adult child, fellow traveler, somebody I know from 12-step meetings. And every time he opens his mouth, uh, I benefit. This is somebody that has done the work, is continuing to do the work. So I will leave the the profound and life-changing comments to him. However, I do have a few things that I want to comment on. Uh, the first of which being, I want to talk about, you know, what it means to be an adult child. I had somebody comment on one of my social media videos last week saying that we need to stop calling ourselves adult children because that is living life with the belief that there is something inherently wrong with us. And that comment really stirred me because that is truly in complete opposition of what it means to be an adult child and why I created this podcast. You know, I created this podcast to let you know that there is not something inherently wrong with you because for years I thought that there was something inherently wrong with me. I then learned that I was an adult child and that was the moment that change became a possibility for me. That was the moment that healing started to occur for me. And while I am still very much healing, I am by no means healed. The change in healing that has occurred has been profound. And that's why I felt so compelled to create this podcast. You know, the definition of an adult child is not somebody who is inherently wrong or flawed or unlovable or whatever. The definition of an adult child is somebody who grew up in a dysfunctional family, which is impacting their lives as an adult. And let's be honest, that is like 75% or like 99% of the population. And that is nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. When I call myself an adult child, I feel a sense of pride associated with that because I have been through some shit but I am facing it, I am talking about it, and all of that has shaped me into the person that I am today, 
all of that shit has been the catalyst to what I believe are my greatest strengths and assets. Yes, that stuff may seem like it's a liability, but it can be transformed and flipped into an asset. Ah, there's my my recovered CPA coming out in me. I will not use any more accounting terms. Uh, But with that being said, I want to acknowledge each and every one of you. You know, we're all on our own healing journey. We all have our own path. And I'm sure that there's some of you listening right now beating yourself up because you're not doing enough or you think you should be doing this or that. But I want you to know that by simply listening to this podcast, you are taking action and this is a step towards healing. There are so many people out there that can't even listen to this because it's talking about something that they're not yet ready to face. So I just want you all to acknowledge acknowledge that this is you taking action, you know, you taking a step towards healing and growing. Because I know, at least for me, it can just be so fucking hard on myself that I'm not doing enough and I'm not where I want to be. So I hope that you all can acknowledge the work that you are doing. Because as I said, there's so many people out there who will not ever be willing to, to admit that they're an adult child or to, you know, face this stuff. Next, I just want to extend my love and gratitude to each and every one of you. I feel so fucking grateful to be a part of your life. I feel so grateful that you take an hour out of your week to listen to me. I feel so grateful every time that I receive a message from one of you. You know, I've been feeling a lot of fear lately and Today, the past few days, I've really been trying to sit with myself and um, acknowledge what I've done this past year because the feelings that I'm not good enough or that I'm not where I want to be, you know, all of that stuff still pops up. And so I've really been trying to find a place of gratitude and acknowledge the work that I've done this past year. Because I'll be honest, this year has been amazing, but it also has been, it's been hard. It's been an experience of vacillating between faith and fear. I've shared that part of, you know, this journey for me has been about trying to, to live as my authentic self and just this journey to the apex of my personal fulfillment and contribution to the world. I'm still very much on that journey. And I do have a lot of fear that, um, what if I don't get there? And receiving your messages and, and hearing the impact that this is having on your lives is the fuel that keeps me going. And I just can't thank you enough. It, it makes me very emotional. And I just feel so honored, so honored to be a part of your lives. So last thing, I just want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members. Patreon is where I host virtual support groups. Patreon is where all the cool kids hang out. Patreon is where you can show your gratitude and appreciation for this podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Tracy, Anessa, Jessica, Joey, Jen, Tony, Alex, Val, Jasmine, Sarah H., Shayna, and Ariel. Thank you guys so much. And I do just want to plug that next week, next Thursday and Sunday, I guess it's the 6th and the 9th, 
we are doing some groups to uh, reflect upon this year and to set intentions and set the stage for the year ahead and what we want to manifest and what we want to create. So again, head on over to patreon.com slash adult child to, as I said, hang out with the cool kids. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Do it. Your life depends upon it. And now for Francisco. My friends feel as they're appointed to place where black is the main character where we dive into something new like the latest season of them the scare and the award-winning american fiction or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend bob marley one love and add on channels like paramount plus and stars to bask in nostalgia with beverly hills cop and bmf explore prime videos culture rated collection and enjoy old school greats and new school hits restrictions apply see amazon.com slash amazon prime for details well, it is my pleasure to introduce a, a former shit show, just like me, and somebody who really has done the work and is continuing to do the work. And that's why I really um, wanted to have him on the pod today. So welcome, Francisco. Hi, uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Yeah, to, uh, pumped to have you. Here. So our stories are similar in the sense that you um, got sober and, and like, like me, did you think that that was the main problem? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I had no idea what an ACA was or, um, just like, it's kind of like recovery is like, there's an episode of the Simpsons where Homer climbs this mountain and he gets to the top and he walks and there's like three other summits (laughs) waiting for him. And that, that, that is how I feel recovery is. Oh. Take the summit and it's like, oh, wait, there's uh, another fuck. fucking peak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. But it's good. It's continued opportunities for growth. So before we get into your upbringing, I want to hear about uh, how you hit your adult child bottom. I think also, I think we also were similar too and kind of had the realization uh, didn't take it too, too seriously. And then had to suffer some more pain, uh, before you we were really willing to, to do, to do the damn work. So, uh, yeah. Tell me about how you realized that you were an adult child. Well, yeah, I think that it is one of those things where sometimes if you are in another 12 step group, um, in my experience, uh, in my case, AA, people talk about the onion, right? The, that there's layers to the onion and you have to peel the onion and which is true for everybody, all alcoholics, but for us who are ACAs, some of the, those layers of the onion end up being the ACA work. And mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was until I got to it. But um, basically my ACA bottom was that I had gotten sober and um, I had gone through the 12 steps of AA and I was doing the deal, as we say. And uh, at a certain point around year four, year five, that's when I had to walk through the ACA bottom. And it was a long bottom because it was a point where I was just, 
I had stayed sober long enough for the things that I used to drink over to come bubbling up and to stay there. Mm. And the thing is about it, it, I wasn't medicating to get rid of those feelings or to ignore them or uh, just to just manage them. And because of that, I was using the tools of AA and I wasn't drinking over them. That, 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 was, that is very effective for that. But for the actual addressing where those feelings came from, AA wasn't, do, it wasn't quite doing it. Um, so how did you feel during those first four years? I mean, were you happy, joyous and free? <laughs> well, I was getting there. I felt like I was on the road, right? Because when you're first newly sober, all the new experiences you have, and I think that's like a human tendency is like new experiences kind of take you out of self, take you out of your mm-hmm. ego. And they're, they, 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 it was a bit of the pleasure principle, right? Which is like, Oh, this is cool. This is nice. And I know it's easier to get into gratitude about things like, oh, I'm not in jail. I'm not, uh, I'm not waking up with a, with a crippling hangover. Um, oh, I can, I mean, I can go to dinner and not drink. I can go and meet new people and not drink. I can go anywhere and not drink. Uh, you know, I can sign up for classes at, at the community college. Um, I can even get, get decent grades, uh, you know, just like the stuff, like, basically, I, I've heard from old timers in AA that it's like, yeah, the first few years, it's like just learning how to put on your shoes and mm-hmm. dress yourself and, uh, and just live life. And so those things were, were happening. And there was some really cool stuff happened in my first couple of years of sobriety, which showed me like, you can actually have a happy life. You can have, actually have a good life. Uh, it's not necessarily, you're not set out to uh, be a miserable person. Um, necessarily, especially the alcohol problem was the biggest issue in my life. It was the thing that was poisoning all other aspects. So once I got rid of that, uh, things were starting to go well. And I think really my ACA bottom was connected to, uh, what's well, relationship really? Um, oh, wow. <laughs> you must be the only one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, uh, I didn't have a, what was it for you with two mics? Two Brian's. Two Brian's, yeah. Yeah. I didn't have I didn't have two Brian's, but I was tending to um be attracted to the same type of same type of person over and over again. First question, did you uh did you date in early sobriety? No, I didn't. And that's I feel like I'm like a rare uh forest elf that uh in that aspect because most people would jump in it. I was really frustrated about that, okay? Like <laughs> it was just like why me? And uh uh, on the other side of it, I realized that it was actually my higher power working in my life and keeping me going, uh-uh, uh-uh. You know, this, this guy, he can't do that. He can't walk through that and not drink. Mm. So, because uh, if I had gone through dating without knowing who I really was, knowing what my uh, what my past patterns were, what, what, what from my childhood trauma was coming up in relationships, if I had gone through dating and not known any of that, mm-hmm. I would have been in so much pain that I would have picked up a drink, no matter what other tools I had at my disposal. That's what I think. Um, I don't know how I stayed sober. Like I don't have any fucking clue. Um, okay. So then, so it's coming up in relationships. Yeah. It came up in relationships. Cause it was also because like a year four, I was like, well, gee, like, well, look, my, my life is getting pretty good. It's a, 
I'm starting to uh, progress in things, and uh, but why haven't I gotten a relationship? Why? What was was that about? Mm-hmm. And so it came to a point where I started getting interested in a couple of people, uh, and just like the pain oh, over not having that reciprocated put me in a spiral where it was like uh, my sponsor, uh, my AA sponsor, uh, called. Uh, said okay I think that you need to uh get some outside help for that and I had no idea what he was talking about but he's been around a long time so he's seen a lot of things so um and he actually had another um person in the fellowship who went to therapy to address some of these things and uh and so I started going to therapy with him and that's where I discovered my inner child because I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what this wound was, that it was this this lack of feeling like I was not dateable or this feeling that I was not able to be in a relationship um, was linked to abandonment. It was linked to not getting that base level of love that we're supposed to get in our childhoods. And that's what... I had no idea that's what it was, but when I started doing therapy, uh, specifically to address these things, I started to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, I had another friend of mine, because it was like, it's like when the AA, when you start to drink with lower, you find lower companions, you find people who drink like you. Mm-hmm. I found people in recovery who were also ACA, yeah. <laughs> and we all, we, we all just, you know, did what we do and uh replicated our toxic patterns mm. with each other um codependency and being abusive to each other and um and and, and you know like uh, we were all still trying our best and we were still trying to work the AA program around everything and um some are still around some are not um because that's the nature of addiction but uh but it was all it, it was it was something I was like, oh, okay, so that was an ACA thing. Where you just you tend to vibe with other ACAs. <laughs> and uh, one of them, she said, Oh, I found this program uh that I think it's, it's really gonna be next level. And, and she showed me the laundry list. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, cool. But anyways, <laughs> and then let's move on. Yeah, you re- you read the third the third one. You're like, yep, oh, no, nope, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I glanced at it and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I can see myself in some of these. Of course, when I started working the steps, I found myself in all of them because we have to break out of that denial. But initially, I mean, it, it's worth to touch on because that was the first wins I heard about mm-hmm. what ACA was. And then at the same time, I started doing this therapy, uh, and my therapist he sat me down in this little chair uh that's built for a kindergartner and he asked me as if I was a kid like uh you know what what do you like to play with and I'm like oh Ninja Turtles and all of a sudden I started crying and I had no idea why and I was I didn't even feel sad or anything it was just like kind of like I don't know it, it, it reached something that had been always been there and and uh and from there I started doing work with him, started uh, doing a lot of the stuff that actually is, is in the big red book um, about reaching the inner child. So 
that's one of those things where like a higher power showed up in my life and that I got to do all that before mm-hmm. I even got into the program. Um, eventually, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I started, uh, uh, I started working the ACA steps because I was in enough pain and the therapy was helping, but I knew that, I knew that ACA was it. I knew that I had to go through those steps. And, um, there's one, there's one particular, uh, period where I felt really, really alone and apart and different. And just like a complete freak of nature, even in a, even in an AA, like, and then I think there was like some social event that people were gonna do, and I just did not. I just like uh, I felt absolutely horrible because I didn't feel like uh, I could be a part of it. And you know, of course, there's another, there's another p- potential person that I was interested in, and uh, completely uh, not uh, emotionally available or even oblivious to the to the fact that I was interested, but. Um, uh, and I think they, they ended up in ACAs as well, of course. But uh, um, uh, but I remember I called my sponsor in AA, and I'm just like, uh, I'm, I'm breaking point. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, go to a meeting. And I'm like, I don't want to go to a separate meeting. Like, I, I, <laughs> it's not working. It doesn't work anymore. And I show up at this random meeting. I'm like, okay, just get to a meeting. Uh, and I show up at this random meeting and there's somebody there who is an AA old timer and he's talked about how he had a nervous breakdown late in his sobriety. And then he discovered this program called ACA. And he said, a lot of old timers have untreated ACA mm-hmm. issues. And of course, because I had already uh, been doing the inner child work and therapy and I had, uh, yeah, then I, I had been exposed because of my friends to this program a few months before that. I was like, okay. So I asked him to sponsor. Oh, no, no, no. What happened uh, uh, with that is he and I fellowshipped after. So we went uh, we went to see a movie and we went to get pizza and we were walking and this person that I'm interested in just like randomly pops out and says hi to both of us. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> so I just tell him, I just tell him everything. And then he's like, what's your relationship like with your parents? And I'm just like, well, no, 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 it's, it's fine. It's great. It's, it's great. You know, like I, I made amends to them and I, and, and I'm, and I'm sober. So I'm sure they're happy and blah, 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 blah. And uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, I'm like, eventually like a couple weeks later, I was like, yeah, I'm an ACA. <laughs> and so I asked him to sponsor me and we went through the steps. So I want to backtrack some because I've obviously, I've talked a lot about my insanity and romantic relationships and the type of people I was attracted to. Um, I don't think I've, I haven't really dove into it too much with a male guest. So I want to hear about like, so what was, tell me about your broken picker. What were you attracted to? And then how did that manifest? Explain what it was like, you know, cause your, your sponsor is telling you that you need to seek outside help. So how, how did your peace of mind get hijacked? What did that look like for you? I think that I'm primarily, well, we try to find people who are like our parents, right? So I just gravitated toward people who were emotionally unavailable, who also had ACA issues, who, um, uh, who were manipulative, 
um, and who just uh, were not communicative at all with their feelings. Are you an anxious attacher? Hmm, I'm not sure I heard that term before. Kind of like the like like the codependent versus the avoidant attacher is the one who's more emotionally disconnected. Yeah, like I we whenever we sense that somebody's like pulling away, then we act you know more and call more and versus uh, an avoidant oh, yeah, is yeah. more so when they start to feel that the other person is emotionally attaching to them, then they pull away. Oh, uh, no, I'm definitely the first Okay, one. yes, anxious. I assume. I think I got that from, I got that from my mother because my dad uh, left her early on mm-hmm. uh, in the first year of my life. And then uh, they got back together and then he came to the United States. So my mother went through two huge waves of abandonment and her father was an alcoholic. So of course she never got the love that she needed from him. And so I think that that, that was passed on to me and completely just barnacling onto a person. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I paddle, actually, I, it, we're coming up on the 13th anniversary of me going to jail. Oh, lovely. And what happened there was because I was interested in someone in my active addiction. And um, <laughs> I drank at her when she did not reciprocate. Mm. Of course, she was, a, she, she, she was a heavy drinker herself. And uh, um, oh, yeah, and that's the other thing, too. I, I, I'm attracted to other people who, who drink and you like I did. Yes. And, um, and, and so, of course, I end up in a blackout and I wander into an open garage and, you know, uh, and then police, police are called. And long story short, I spent a week in there. Um, and so, again, this was all over my feelings of not being loved mm-hmm. and over, over another person. So I was definitely, and before that, I was, I mean, I was a nightmare. I was like blowing up her phone and just like not being, uh, not being, a, having a rational response to someone not being interested in you. Mm-hmm. And we actually texted her earlier today. Uh, she's still a friend. Oh, so good. <laughs> I've done the work and I, I actually keep her at a bit of a distance. Yeah. Is she sober? Like what? No. no. <laughs> it's like at, at this point, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like if you've known someone since like you were 15 or 16, yeah, I, I, I value her presence in my life, but it's uh, the appropriate presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've learned how to do that because of ACA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really relate to what you said about um, just how uh, getting sober it's almost like, yeah, it's like the drinking, the drugs, right. That's like medicating the adult child issues. It's, it's like putting a bandaid on a wound in a sense. And it is like, when we get sober, it's like slowly ripping off that bandaid. And for me, I really feel like it allowed those issues to really start festering and growing, you know, and it was, um, it, it got progressively worse for me, just like my alcoholism did. So I feel grateful that it manifested in such a dramatic way for me. Cause I feel like, like what that old timer said, you know, about how there's so many untreated, uh, adult children that are old timers. I feel grateful that my issues manifested in such a painful way that it was like, it was unavoidable. Like I, there was no denying it or hiding it versus other adult children, to where, where their issues, their symptoms might be a lot more subtle. Um, and they never really come to, you know, hit a bottom 
you know, or, or get to the place where they're willing to do the work to change. So, um, I feel grateful that I was as big of a shit show, you know, as I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, me too. Cause I, I mean, I got a head start on things. I feel like uh-huh. because I started getting APA when I was in year four or five and, but the other, the other side of it is I had to be enough pain for that. And because, and the reason for that was because these wounds were so large. Mm-hmm. How long have you been sober now? Uh, I will have 12 years, uh, in July. Nice. That's great. Um, Okay. So let's backtrack now to childhood. What is your earliest memory? Actually, my earliest memory is, uh, Hurricane Hilbert. Oh, where did you grow up? I think in 88, I was born in the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, the capital, Uh um, that's in Mexico. And I moved to the United States when I was five, but my first memory was I think that we moved out of out of my house or we were being moved to another place. And I just remember outside and I just remember the trees going sideways and the rain going sideways. And uh, then I'm just in some place with a, on, in a bed with a blanket on me. And, um, and that was it. And it's kind of like, okay, that's an apt metaphor because that's kind of like uh, the, the chaos. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, 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 uh, backdrop of chaos that has informed, that informed my childhood and informed my, uh, informed my life. Um, that was my first memory. Um, but then a lot of my memories from my time in Mexico were just a lot of melancholia, like a feeling of sadness, uh, like a feeling of aloneness. And I think that in hindsight, well, like I, like I mentioned before, my dad wasn't around um, first because of this thing that I had not found, found out about until uh, 2015, because don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And uh, fam- big family secrets. And um, But my mom, doing the best she could, just could not adequately give us the love that we needed me and my uh, older sister. Are you going to tell us what this big secret is? Uh, the big, well, that, that was, that was the big secret that my dad left my mom. Briefly oh, left her. Oh, oh, okay. So you didn't, okay. You weren't, a, you didn't have memories of that. No. Cause I was very young. It was not, okay, got not it. too much after I was, not too long after I was born. Okay. And then he reappeared and, at what point? Five years old? Uh, he reappeared maybe when I was two, two okay, or three. Okay, got it. But then got not it. long after that, uh, he decided that he needed to come to the U.S. Okay, got and, it. Um, his brothers had, uh, all, uh, my uncles, uh, some of them had already started coming here. So he went here to check it out. And then it was just like a perfect timing with the Reagan amnesty that, that had started to get going in the late eighties in California. And he just realized he could, you know, make, make, make a better chance of things for us if he stayed there. So, um, so, so it was just like, a, like I said, a two, uh, two punch abandonment for, for, for me and my family, uh, for her first him and for my mother, first him leaving and then him leaving again, even though the second one, was completely different. But again, you know, like your, your inner child does not understand things like that. Mm -hmm. So for her, it must've been like that abandonment that she felt in childhood from my grandfather reassessing itself. And of course we did not 
understand any of this and we never understood it because we didn't talk about these things mm-hmm. and um so then how long was he here before you and your mom and you have siblings you have a sister right i have a sibling who an older sister and the younger sister the younger one was born in the u.s okay uh, and the older one obviously was born in mexico uh, about a year and a half before i did uh, i was and oh and my mother also suffered a miscarriage before that mm. which she never looked at or addressed uh because you know these are these, these are things that you're just expected to sleep under the rug and stiff upper upper lip and um of course there's a, there's all, all these issues but with uh with my, my mom being a woman and being alone and you know, it was just, it was a really difficult go of it for her. And um, that was passed on to us because she was just so preoccupied with her abandonment and uh, that she wasn't able to properly give us the attention or, or socialize us properly as well. Um, I remember that we just spent a lot of time alone. And like one of my dad's visits from the US, he brought me an NES and that was my primary caregiver. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first addiction as well. I would like live on that thing. And I actually, and this is my mom's cousin. Is that the original Nintendo? Would, yeah, the original Nintendo with Super Mario. And um, I just like would play that thing religiously. And my mom's codependence, and this kind of shows her parenting style. She would fuss and moan about me on that thing, but there was nothing else to do. And <laughs> she would actually be spoon feeding me dinner while I was playing so I'd be like playing 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 leaning over take a bite keep playing and that's uh yeah so I'm like I'm I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's a pretty big ACA upbringing and that's kind of and again that 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 attachment that we talked about with which I replicated with uh, people I was interested in that was seen there because my mom's like, oh my God, I have to cater to this mm. person's uh, desires and um, wants. Mm-hmm. And she was already laminating that from her father to my dad to me. Mm. So you called her Princess Peach? She was Toadstool. <laughs> toadstool, okay. <laughs> she was Toadstool in the, uh, for us. Um, I think Peach, they started doing that in the late 2000s. Later, okay, okay. Um, so... So then how long, how long was your dad in the U S before you guys made the trek? Uh, my dad was in the U S I think a few years. I, we came out in, we came in 91. And where did you come in California? We ended up in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, so like, uh, my, my father's community in Mexico, uh, in Pistol Yucatan was, uh, they usually went to two two different places, the Bay Area and Fort Bragg, the California okay. one, not the North Carolina. Yeah. And so we ended up, uh, and it's just, that's like a classic immigrant story. You go where your family and your community ends up. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we did. And you obviously didn't know any English. No, I did not know a single word of English. Uh, I learned pretty fast, but again, it's uh that was a traumatic uh, thing as well because it's like you go to a place where you're already not socialized at all. You already feel like uh, I remember in Mexico I tried to rally the neighborhood kids one time and this 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 lady like kind of like laughed at me, which you probably thought oh he's being cute, but for me I felt like she was like that like hit something that like mm. just 
feeling of inadequacy and um i think my mother was around but she didn't say anything or i didn't say anything either because i had never learned to talk about my feelings or talk about how i felt and uh so so i still remember that because again that goes exactly to that feeling of like when i'm sitting there and uh feeling reject socially rejected like i can't go to this AA thing and it's like exactly that same button mm. And if I remember it from that early on, from from year three or four of my life, and that is something that was passed on to me by well, by my mother. So then you get you get over here, and then I mean, was there were there drugs and alcohol present in your home growing up as a kid? No, and that's the thing about it is my father was what I would call now a dry drunk. He had gone to AA in Mexico for a little bit. Um, oh, wow. And he had gotten, he gotten enough solution that he learned not to drink. Was this before you were born? This is around the time when I was born. Okay. So I never got the timeline down completely. These things are something that I've had to piece together. In yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you learn about this? Yeah, I just, I do remember my father would talk about, oh yeah, alcoholics anonymous. They helped me a lot when I was like, when I was younger and I was like 10 or 11 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, just because of just different pieces from my grandparents and from my mom, and, um, and and so, but I had never completely learned the whole story until I was able to do the ACA work and kind of put things in their place. Um, so there was no drinking in the home, but my dad was a dry drunk because he had stopped working the program, and he is one of these people who. He was one of these people who I think uh, just like uh, we talk about um, in, if you believe in AA tenants and the in 12 steps that if you don't work the program and you're a real alcoholic, you're going to exhibit alcoholic behavior sans alcohol. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Al-Anon, poor Al-Anon suffer from alcoholism and they don't even drink. So yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty bad deal. And, yeah, no uh, kidding. <laughs> And so, of course, my mother is a black belt, untreated Al-Anon as well. And uh, so it, it was like, and that was one of the things that really made me, I think it might, it might have been on my sixth meeting of ACA that really locked everything in for me was the passage in the Big Red Book that says there's some of us who are grandchildren of alcoholics who still had the dysfunction passed on to us, even if there was no drinking in the home. Mm-hmm. Of course, for me, it was pretty obvious as well, because not only were both my grandparents alcoholics, but just the behaviors were uh, completely alcoholic for my, for, for my family. And so then when did you start drinking? And I started drinking, well, first of the story of pot when uh-huh. I was 14. And uh, that, kept me, that, that, that kept me going, and I, it was still my preferred drug of choice until I stopped everything. Um, but drinking itself, I did not start until I was 18. Okay. And then tried to get sober the first time at 21 after I got the legal consequences. And then after that, I, uh, got sober again at 24 and the second one has stuck so far. Good. So was, was 20, was that 21? Was that after you, um, had the, uh, you got arrested in, in the bait, in the garage? Yeah, actually, that was happening a couple of days before my 21st birthday. And so, you know, you're an alcoholic when you can't even wait to get into jail until you can legally do so. <laughs> I, I didn't, I've never even had a legal drink. 
<laughs> yeah, some of us we we get started early. And yeah, sure. If we're do. lucky, we get to stop early too. Uh-huh. So did you have consequences right away? Like when you started smoking pot and like what was your experience like during high school? Well, I was already a horrible student. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think I got consequences there, but I really just it completely overtook my life. I could not stand not being stoned until like uh, well, a year 14 and 15 not so bad but it was like it's a progressive thing right so by year uh, year 17 I just was like not not a functioning person at all in any sense of the word and I uh, just I could not stand not being stoned and then of course when I got eight when, when I was 18 the first thing I did was get my cannabis card mm-hmm. uh, and so that was uh yeah that was the whole thing and then like and then 18 through 21, uh, just drinking and consequences, blacking out, um, just, you know, the, the, the usual alcoholic story. Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to make a note here. You said you were a horrible student. I would like everybody to know that you are currently getting your PhD at an Ivy League school. So things uh, turned out pretty okay for you. So, yeah. Yeah. And I like to say that I was a I was a high school dropout and uh, wow. it took me six years of community college and uh, two relapses to finish my BA. And after that, yeah, I decided to do the grad school thing. <clears throat> so what role did you play in your family growing up? Were you the, the hero, the scapegoat, the lost child? What, what role did you play? I was a mix of, I think, mostly the lost child uh-huh. and a little bit of the hero actually my dad's nickname for me was his champion mm. um my older sister is definitely the scapegoat she continues to be the scapegoat because mm-hmm. she struggles and you know i have to, i have to do a lot of work around that one but i also understand that as being the firstborn she caught the worst of it mm-hmm. and this is a generational thing just like my dad's brother he was the firstborn and he caught the worst of it he actually killed himself uh back in the mid 2000s and so you know this this thing gets passed on um but I was the I was the lost child because obviously my younger sister was a baby she was the mascot um and my older sister was a scapegoat and so being the middle child and also not having as much going on in terms of my acting out uh as my sister uh I was kind of just there yeah, with your Nintendo. Did you did you get a yeah, Super Nintendo? I, I had upgraded to a Super Nintendo and then eventually an N64. So Okay. I think that N64 was like the best system ever. Now now, now there's too many buttons on the damn things. I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah, plus you have to like upgrade every time you go and like it takes another 15 minutes just to download the new software. Yeah. So with your alcoholism addiction, man, like progressing, how, what was your family's role in it? Were they, um, trying to get you sober or were you kind of off on your own by that point? Oh, well, um, no, cause I actually, and this is another sign of our alcohol dysfunction is that I could not break away from home. I didn't, uh, I didn't leave home until I came to grad school. Uh-huh. Um, what happened was that Every time, even when I got, I, even when I got sober, like, and I went and did a semester of undergrad and I moved into a, a room that was adjacent to the university campus. Mm-hmm. And even then my, my dad would fight me on it. 
he was definitely the savior in his family. Mm-hmm. And he would not let us do anything for ourselves mm-hmm. or let us give us room to fall flat on our faces. Um, he, like when I taught, taught him, like, yeah, I should, I should, I should learn how to be independent. He's like, oh, no, why, why, what do you have to do that? You're, you're fine here. Like, we have to take care of you. You don't have to pay rent and all that stuff. Right. And uh, like survival mechanisms, really. But at the same time, it just doesn't give you the room to grow up. And so in terms of my addiction, he would passively, passive aggressively leave me AA pamphlets on my pillow, which anybody who's done any Alan on work, but no, 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 you do not do that. You are just pushing people further away from the program. If you force them or you cajole them or you try to bargain with them, and he, he would bribe me to go to church by uh, taking us out for pizza after, which is just a, a milder version of that. that mm-hmm. but, but that was kind of... Uh, I do love pizza. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that, was, that, did, that did work for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, God bless him. He did his best. And that was... Actually, I remember from my grandmother who I visited... Uh, just very for very recently and she told me about when i was in jail uh he basically forced her to go with him because he said uh come with me so he can see you and he feels bad and he's shamed into getting sober mm. which was not good for any of us it was not good for me <laughs> it was not good for him it was not good enough for the it was not good for the poor old lady yeah so it's like let's 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 kind of the, share the trauma all around. Did he ever drink again? He he remained dry for the rest of his life. No, he he actually picked up again, which I didn't hear about until maybe, a, well, around I he started drinking again when I was abroad in Mexico doing a study program, and I didn't know about it until like four years later. Okay. And so he had been drinking in secret all that time, which is another very ACA thing to do. It's uh, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. My mom knew about it. She didn't tell me about it, trying to spare my feelings. But of course, at that time, I had been sober long enough and I had started doing the ACA work. And I'm like, gee, this guy's a dry drunk. Like, <laughs> you find out he's been drinking. <laughs> he's completely completely irritable, restless, discontent, uh, not communicative at all. And then it's like, oh, well, he's been drinking. Okay. So he's not actually dry. He's just, <laughs> he's a wet he's drunk. He's drunk again. He's a drunk drunk. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think he did stop, uh, for the end of his life, he stopped again, but like, uh, just by the white knuckling it. Same, same thing as my grandfather, actually. My grandfather stopped drinking, but just completely on self-will and uh and i was like of course for me my addictive side was like oh oh, maybe then i don't need the program and then my grandmother right away said oh yeah his neuroses never left him but he stopped drinking that was great and i was like okay never mind thanks grandma (laughs) yeah so that's that that's why i always have to be like okay recovery has to be holistic it has to be everything i can't just not drink and i can't just not or i can't just do aca i have to do both yeah i've thought about that some about um for some people like 
can they resolve their trauma and work through their shit and then be able to drink? Uh, if, if they think that that's, if the, if the underlying cause of their alcoholism is their trauma, but I mean, for me, I don't have any fucking desire to drink like a normal person, you know, like I don't, I I've never have, uh, I have no desire to just have one or two drinks and, um, yeah. So I, I know for me that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic for, for me. Yeah, well, for me, that that part is, I think I uh, recently went over the steps of the sponsee, and we talked about the whole integration aspect of it. And for me, I feel like uh, just going through the 12 steps in AA is the integration process we do for that particular laundry list trait, Mm -hmm. because alcoholism is one of our laundry list traits as ACA. Mm -hmm. And some of them we can get rid of, some of them we just have to turn the volume down Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it gets turned way down most of the time, but it doesn't completely go away. And so for the integration part is staying sober and doing what we need to to stay sober in that in that respect. And that so that in that way, I reconcile both programs for myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how long into, um, you know, working ACA, did you uh, start trying dating i think about a year in okay i mean i had been i had been online uh, on like online dating sites for a couple of years but never really uh didn't devote devote too much effort into it and also i didn't actually make the uh make the i i never well i practice what we call relationship and anorexia i was too scared to actually show up to a date because why would anybody love me Mm-hmm. And so once I started doing the ACA stuff and also, you know, I was interested in also managing these feelings of wanting to, uh, wanting uh, to be with someone who was just completely not right for me. And that's one of the other things, though, about, about the people I used to choose is that they completely were not interested. <laughs> so. <laughs> You kind of have to want to, you get, the other person kind of has to show a, a little bit of interest. Is that how it works? <laughs> exactly. So, so um, I think about a year in, I started just uh, going on coffee dates and here and there, but I didn't really feel like, uh, well, I didn't get into an actual serious relationship until I moved out to Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Um, for grad school and um, that was the perfect time too because I was like okay you know what I've, I'm doing programs I feel solid in my recovery and I'm constantly in gratitude because again we're in that phase where everything's new and I really feel like uh, I'm moving forward with my life and also you know I have, I have something to show I remember when I was again that that trip that I went on in Mexico and I would go to a meetings there and of course I thought you know, every trip I took, I was like, "Ooh, maybe I'll find someone, someone on this trip," and that that never happened. But I remember this uh, one uh, old timer in Mexico, and he was just like, "Well, you know, I have to build my house and uh, build it up, and do this and do that, and things that like made cultural sense there to, before I even like was thought about finding a wife." And I'm like finding a wife what are you talking about finding a wife and i'm like building a house so like you know how much it costs building a house in, <laughs> in the united states and, but 
what he was saying was it's all in due time and work on yourself and just become a whole ass person. And you're probably not going to attract someone until you are a whole ass person for yourself. Mm. And so I felt, I started feeling like I was reaching that when, uh, when I came out for grad school and, you know, lo and behold, four or five months later, I, I went on a, went on a date with someone who we were together for four years. And what was that like for you in the beginning in like the earlier stages of the relationship? Um, cause I think as I've said a lot before, you know, I think part of, we have to do part of the work being single and being alone, but then we have more work to do in a relationship. So what was that process like for you? Well, the process I say was a testament to the ACA program in that it went remarkably well for the entire duration of the relationship. Uh, We didn't really start to get some of the stuff coming up until, you know, the last year, Mm -hmm. but it was just more like when, what, what I had learned in therapy as well is that this whole idea of uh, finding your better half, that's like, no, like you have to be a whole person. You have to build your life. And a relationship is really just to enhance it, just like anything else that you bring into your life enhances it, whether it's work, whether it's uh, friends, whether it's you know, training for, for a marathon or doing an artistic project or any, or, or playing video games, any of these things are really should be in the service of making your life richer and more fulfilling. And so a relationship is just one of those aspects. And, uh, and it's kind of like the Venn diagram, the, the, or that, is that the Venn diagram? The one of the two circles that mm-hmm. overlap? Yep, perfect. Yep. Yeah, the overlap of the relationship should be actually be really, really small. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, ACA tendency is that most of the circle is their circle as well. <laughs> it's it's just one damn circle. It's one <laughs> damn circle, exactly. And so I was very cognizant of that going in, mm-hmm. and so we kept our lives mostly separate. For probably longer than we should have, because that was one one of the other things that is uh, when, when we ended up the relationship, my life didn't change that dramatically. And I was like, gee, after four years, maybe we could have shared a little bit more. Was she in recovery? That, that, you know, she was not in recovery. She was one of those rare people who just doesn't drink. Wow. And that weird actually was her. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But um, the important thing was that she was working on herself as well and she mm. did uh things that were not not my my realm of experience but she accepted me for who i was and that i had to do all this stuff and that she recognized okay this person is doing what makes sense for them and that is an attractive thing and uh right back right back at her she was working on oh, herself she had her own goals and priorities um and she was always open about what she was feeling and where she wanted to go with this so all of that made it so that we had a very good relationship um and when there was friction there was friction because there's friction in all human relationships um but even there there was an opportunity to understand what is this bringing up from my childhood and what of my family trauma and dysfunction am I modeling 
in this relationship or in this behavior. Do you have an example of that? You know, that was profound for you or anything that you can think of? Well, yeah, actually, uh, last year during the election, mm-hmm. she was working, she was pretty heavily involved in, um, in the elections here uh, where I live. And of course, I ended up being the, the supportive the supportive partner uh she had her local station or her her uh her staging area near my apartment so she's like oh can i just drop in real quick to just uh, you know take a breather and get centered and i'm like yeah of course of course and she shows up and she's completely frazzled and um so i'm like okay well, anything i need anything i can do um you know not to be a service right Mm-hmm. and uh she's like oh i need to pick up groceries and blah 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 and like we had made a plan to spend uh spend the night together and uh um, be at her place and uh just just because we just uh wanted to be together for whatever whatever came, come whatever comes right and um so i go get i go get groceries and i bike over there which is like a 40 minute bike ride i get there and there's nobody at the house and she said she had forgotten to tell the roommate that I was coming and the roommate wasn't there. She, the roommate wasn't going to be there for like another couple of hours. So I literally felt left out in the cold. Mm-hmm. And so that brought up a lot. And I just said that, that at that point, untreated Francisco would have probably blown up at her and yelled and been accusatory and all that but bringing my program to it I was like you know what I need a bit of space to process to think to tend to my inner child wounds because they've been really active and I think kind of what I realized then too was like oh wow like I'm I'm dating a people pleaser Hmm. I'm dating someone who takes on too much who uh, always has way too many balls in the air and um who can't say no who can't say no to people when they ask them to do something. Mm. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Um, interesting that it comes up now. And what I came around to was that's not being kind is not a, it, it's not a horrible trait to have, but it just has to be something that people have to work on to temper and be kind in a way that makes sense. Mm. So in, in, in a sense, it was kind of like I was dating, uh, I was modeling my mother and she was my father because my father would give you the shirt off his back if it was 20, 20 below. And what I've learned in ACA is like, no, you have to keep your shirt on. Mm. You can tell someone where to go get a shirt, but don't give them your shirt. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, okay, so I, and, and I'm my mother because I'm completely dropping everything and dropping losing my own sense of self to fulfill this person's needs but but the beautiful thing about it was this was a low-key example mm-hmm. and this was not something that was happening all the time this wasn't again the event diagram this wasn't a pattern that was that was our way of being with each other that was just one incident where all this converged and i was able to recognize that as well and so then did that play into the demise of the relationship at all? Um, maybe a little bit. I think that, well, really what, uh, what the relationship, um, 
it's transitioned. I still, I still feel like we're going to be in each other's lives in some sense um, because there was no big destruction, no endpoint. Cheshire reached out to me earlier today, um, but it was it was more of a logistical sense because we both have goals and we both know what we want out of our lives. And I know that I'm here. When we got together, I, I said I have I have two priorities. My first is my recovery, and my second is finishing my PhD program. Everything else comes after that, mm-hmm. and that remains true. And her priority was to build what she's trying to build here in the city. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, once I'm done, I don't know where I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. And she knew that she was going to stay here. So it's and at this point, it's like okay, if we stay together, we're not helping each other grow at this point. We are trying to avoid the painful process of breaking up. Mm. So we, and we, we had an exit date as well. Like, cause I was like, okay, I'm going to go to California to do my field work. And that was uh, scheduled for the summer of 2020. And we all know what happened then. <laughs> and so the pandemic prolonged our relationship. And I'm grateful for that because I had someone to support me and we had we could support each other in, in this incredibly rough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, that did not change the overall fundamental nature of our relationship, which was that I'm going to leave, she's going to stay. And we barely, we, we, don't, we don't have enough of an interface where we could do the long distance thing and... Um, and the, the the months leading up to where I where we thought it was gonna I was going to leave, we were having more and more problems mm. because it was kind of like oh well this is gonna go bad anyway so let's uh mm-hmm. let's, let's let's try to like throw like the elephant in the room exactly and so um I, so we talked about it and I'm just like I don't think we want to replicate that again until like you know the end of August where I go to my writing phase because I want to go to Mexico to uh, to do my writing uh, after my research is done. And uh, and so that's the thing about it. We, we were able to talk about it and we were able to discuss our feelings. What a concept, right? And, uh, and, and so that was more, so there was a little bit of that in there as, as well because it was also felt like if we had been if, if we had been more in each other's lives at this point, then we could have had a stronger conversation about considering staying together. Mm-hmm. But we were able to recognize that that wasn't, uh, that, that wasn't where we were at. Mm-hmm. So what, um, I mean, obviously it, it ended in a very mature way, but so what sort of feelings, um, you know, did that bring up for you and what has the experience been like for you now, you know, being single again? Oh, they absolutely suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the thing. And it's like, um, when, when we talk about life on life's terms, mm-hmm. that actually means life is really, really going to suck sometimes. It's going to be absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to, we don't have to go and do the things that are self-destructive that we know are self-destructive and we don't have to act on, uh, we, we don't have to act on the laundry, laundry list traits. So, um, yeah, but for a while, I mean, I was, I was completely disbalanced and I try to uh, do what I know is right for me, which is go to, go to meetings, try to, 
help other folks, um, try to share my message, uh, pray and meditate, do inner child meditations. But, you know, I, I did, tr- I got on the, I, I got on the apps. Yes. And I started yes. Spending, spending money on all the bells and whistles on the apps and um, going a little bit crazy with the apps for a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, a program eventually kicked in and it was like, okay, let's practice acceptance here and accept that you might be alone for a little bit. <laughs> and then Omicron happened and it was like, okay, so yeah, like maybe, maybe try to slow your crawl a little bit and uh, just get back to, get, get back to you for, for a while. Because, um, you know, this, this, this relationship wasn't like, oh, like, this is my plan. It's just going to happen. When yeah. anything involving other people, we really have no control over. Mm. We have to do the acceptance. That's the root of our, our ACA serenity prayer, accept other people. I have the courage to change the one we can. The wisdom to know that one is me. So that's where I'm at with that. But that's that's the dirty secret about all, all, all 12-step recovery. It doesn't promise that we're going to be all happy all the time. It promises that we can go through absolute shit and we can be okay on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Francisco and I joke around cause he'll always talk about how he gets paired up matches with, you know, potential alcoholics on dating apps. And I can, it's, it's amazing but either everyone out there is an alcoholic or there's just this crazy, uh, magnetic chemistry that exists in, in the apps that brings us to those people. So <laughs> So what are your intentions going into the new year? Uh, well, for, uh, I'm going to keep it low key. I actually, um, since my birthday is on January 2nd and I actually, I accidentally ran a 5k for the first time in my life. I was never a runner. I was wow. always last when we ran the, when we ran the mile in, uh, in, in school. Me school. too. I always would not go to school that day. I hate running. Yeah. And uh, I used to absolutely hate it too. And then, um, in fact, in middle school, again, when I started uh, cooking pot and cutting, uh, and just like weaving, I, I, I just stopped going to gym. Mm-hmm. One time, one time me and my friends, we just piled into the car and we were just waving and we saw the gym teacher out there in front of the, in front of the gym. And we just going to wave to him and he kind of gave us like one of those like chin nods, like, Hey, yo, <laughs> we're just like, let us go. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, last year I accidentally ran a 5K because I start uh, I uh, pressed the wrong, I picked the wrong day on the app. Uh-huh. And so this year I thought I'll oh, one up myself, and uh, so I'm gonna try to uh, do a 10K. Look at you. When is it? Uh, it's on January 2nd. So that's oh, really my it's goal. It's gonna be cold as shit. Where is it? Uh, I'm in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are they running it? Oh, oh no, this is just me. So I'm just gonna, Oh. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna run the, uh, school trail uh-huh. and, um, do a, yeah, do a 10k distance. Nice. So is that just like a long boathouse row kind of? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So nice. finish at the Rocky steps as you do. Uh-huh. You have your music. And so, mm-hmm, exactly. That's what I'm gonna do for myself. Uh, and, uh, this year, well, I'm just gonna, well, who knows? Like uh, this past year has been extremely difficult again. Um, and we didn't mention it, but yeah, my, I lost my dad to COVID this past year. And um, you just never know. That's why we live one day at a time. And that's what we stay grateful for today. 
uh, because today is really all we have and it's all we can ever experience unless you are some kind of supernatural being that can actually have foresight into what's to come. But I do have goals. I don't want to try to have, not to have um, high expectations, but I have goals. And my goal this year is to finish my research and make a transition to writing, which I want to do in Mexico at my childhood home. Um, because I think that's going to be part of my healing work is to do something constructive and um, that will potentially help my help my people um, in the long run because I do feel that that's my life's purpose um, and to do it where it all started and um, feel the presence of my my inner child and do some healing work there as well. I feel like just cause you brought it up and I feel like it's important. Can you talk a little bit about, um, just what the process was with losing your father? And, um, I don't know if they're, how you've had, how you had to practice, you know, the program and principles and in, in handling that. Well, at the end of the day, it's something that I still have to process and deal with. And I'm actually going into grief counseling on it. So again, going back to the, the, the idea of the peak and we think we've climbed it and there's another huge one. Well, I just came up uh, to a really big one. And so I'm going to approach it the way I've approached everything. And, um, but uh, this program allowed me not only to navigate that with, I mean, there was, there was, there was trauma for sure. He was intubated for 41 days and I had to uh, deal with my family the entire time. Mm-hmm. So, but um, to protect myself from the worst excesses of it, to take time for myself, to know when to say no, um and to realize that some of the parts where I couldn't say no wasn't it was because that's what I had to do at the time it was not because I was the family savior it was not because I had to do it It's because I chose to do it because that was the loving thing to do and that's the best way that this was what I was, this is what I worked the steps for. This is what I did was in recovery for is to walk through these things. And, um, and at the end of the day, I was able to be there with my dad when he passed. And um, the further I get from that, the more I realize what a huge gift that was. Mm. And uh, this program was a lot, was what allowed me to do that. And mm to honor and love him and understand the, the beginning of ACA work was, was realizing that my parents did their best, but that it wasn't good enough. And I was at the beginning was focusing on that it wasn't good enough because we have to move out of the now we have to face the reality of what happened to us. But now on this side of things, I can focus on the, the bid, that they did their best Mm. and honor that and take the best of that and you know I still and know that a lot of who I am is because of my parents not just the bad stuff but a lot of the good stuff as well um the the kindness that my father had which I feel is one of the things that killed him because maybe he couldn't tell someone to keep their mask on or maybe he shouldn't have been working as many jobs that he had because we were all grown children and mm-hmm. um you know he could have like found a way to take care of himself or just do less for himself um do less for others do more for himself and um to know how to be that type of person but in a way 
that you still honor and love yourself first and foremost. And uh, that that's how I can reconcile what happened and uh, carry it on into whatever comes for me. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful note to end on. So thank you so much. I know that this is going to be beneficial for a lot of people. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. And yeah, I do. If anything comes out of my experience, it's that if it, if it helps someone, you know, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. That's why we, that's why we do this stuff. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, I know you did. Uh, If I sound different right now, it's because I'm recording this on my phone because I'm too lazy to plug my mic back in. Uh, But thanks again to Francisco. That was really, really amazing and awesome. Uh, Next week, I am talking to uh, Ariel Stern. She was the uh, co-worker um, therapist that works with Elizabeth Earnshaw that I had on a couple weeks ago who focuses more on um, couples with addictions. So that is for next week. I recorded it today. It was an amazing episode. So excited to hear for y'all to hear that. Um, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. Again, give me a five-star rating. Again, join the Patreon and I will see you shit shows next week for another fabulous episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.